And welcome back to another episode of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. And with me is a fellow Canadian, a fellow Ontarian, and fellow, what do we call, Golden Horseshoeian, um, uh, Jeff Dupuy. Did I pr- pronounce your last name right? Yes, you did. Um, but I, I understand you're from Windsor, Ontario, originally. Uh, yeah, I've been all over. But uh, I'm born in Windsor, lived in Montreal, my boyhood back to Windsor for high school, uh, university, Toronto, big smoke, you know, get a job, then transferred out to Seattle, went to Seoul, back here now. <laughs> Burlington. I, I, I ask because um, my family is from Windsor and oh. they have a very, very distinct way of pronouncing French Canadian names in Windsor because yes. it's very Americanized. Yes, yes. So I'm in here... In Toronto, I'm Dupuy. Uh, but if you okay. go to Windsor, it, it's Dupuy, which is Dupuy, not right, I, yes. Which is not how I want it to be pronounced. Right, yes, yes. Glad. You, you are are you a kind of good French Canadian stock there or um well my my grandfather was from a yeah. uh, small French Canadian community uh near Windsor, and then he oh, moved yes. to the city because they were a family of farmers, and then yes, right, he okay. moved to the city to Get one of those good uh, smokestack painting jobs that oh, you yeah. do in an industrial city like Windsor. Oh, okay, very nice. Yeah, you don't sort of realize it, but you know the fur trade, right? All the way down from uh, I'm in Quebec. You know, follow the uh, you know the Great Lakes and the locks and canals, and right all the way down to Windsor. And there is a very, I guess, probably small and diminishing now, but there was a very small French Canadian. I mean, my my Mimi and Pepe. Uh, my mother's side, my French Canadian side, they they were definitely of that stock. And uh, but the Bell River, I think, is where most of them are located today. That French is like, I, I mean, you know, Parisians make fun of you know Quebecois French, Quebec Quebecois people just would are horrified by what Windsor area French mutated into. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the last times I was staying in Windsor, we, uh, my wife and I had an Airbnb on what's pronounced Puri. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Uh, which is Pierre. Yeah. <laughs> and my cousins were all like, oh, so you're staying on Puri? That's not far. That's a great location. And I was like, I can't follow you there. I can't call Puri. I'm sorry. I, I'm okay with calling Francois Francois. I've gotten used to that. I grew up right, hearing yeah, that. Yeah. But uh, Puri for Pierre? No, so that's a, that's a step too far. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's too much Detroit influence. <laughs> well, we'll get into who you are, what you do and what your conspiracy is and more interesting stuff. But I don't know. It's my podcast. And someone who hails from uh, Windsor is fascinating to me. This is this is such a first. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I was I was born in the city of Toronto. It's just okay. my dad and all okay. of his family. So Windsor was a place we yes. frequently used to visit. And since my dad has passed, I actually oh, okay. I kind of visit it more um, yeah, yeah. to get that feel of of where my dad came from. And Windsor is a very unique and very nice Canadian small city. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, very, very Americanized. Cause it's, I mean, everything media is all out of Detroit. So Windsor people tend like you'll, you'll, when you'll find Windsor people have a very hard time thinking in metric, you know, uh, you know, they temperatures Fahrenheit. And if you were to say like 21 Celsius to them, big majority of Windsor people would be like um would be just be like you know our american cousins would be like what does that even mean i don't know 
Yes. Every Sunday night growing up, there'd always be a time around dinner where my dad would get on the phone and we talked to all of his Windsor family. And obviously my my grandmother, my aunts, my uncles didn't know really what to say to a a young boy that they didn't see that much of growing up in Toronto. And they'd always ask about the weather and tell me what it was in Fahrenheit. And that meant nothing to me. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, and, you know, as a little kid, you just say, oh, well, it's 21 degrees here. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay but uh yeah but i mean more to the point you are a, you're i mean you're kind of a i i i i saw you on uh the monster talk uh board on uh facebook and and then i'm and uh and then i'm like oh this, this guy seems interesting and then i discovered oh, you're you're not just an author but you kind of write you can correct me if i'm wrong you write mystery novels uh kind of set in a cryptozoological context is that accurate close that's that's accurate it's uh the protagonist of my novels laura reagan hosts a tv series um sort of like finding bigfoot or in search of uh so they go on location to um do an episode about a particular cryptid and what they end up finding is a murder mystery involving human beings right, yes. in each book. Right. So they apply their science and their skepticism to trying to figure out who, who done it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a great, it's a great concept. Um, I had an author on way, way back and he kind of, he, he, again, he sort of did like a, a, a skeptical novel about UFOs. And, but again, it's that, it's that kind of like telling a good story but you know, but having skepticism as you, you know, kind of the, the 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 writing tool. It's like you know, even if you're not a skeptic, you can just still enjoy the story. But you know, ideas can leak in. Well, and it, that was what was so important to me is the the protagonist. Her father was a true believer, Bigfoot hunter, whereas she's more of an anthropologist. Um, trying to reconcile her own science-based skepticism with uh, the sort of belief that was passed on (laughs) from her father. So when you're raised in a certain environment, it's always there in the back of your mind. So she's like very serious about doing cryptozoology in a scientific kind of skeptical way, but she can't help but think like, well, what if there is something there? Uh, because I think to a degree, we all want that, right? Like, I want there to be Bigfoot out in the woods. Wouldn't, wouldn't you think the world would be a cooler place if that oh, were the yeah. case? Oh, yeah. Um, before, I was going to say, before we get too much of the weeds, let's 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 get your books out there, the titles of your books. So it, it, it's called Creature X. Is that That's kind of the, oh, the series, the idea. And, and you've, yes. got, you've got two out and you've got kind of one in press kind of thing right now i've no i've three three are out three are available oh okay okay so um, it's are you coming with a fourth book or is that your third has just been recently published the third has been fairly came out last year okay. and i have a fourth that i'm working on but i've been working on other projects as well okay um but the first book is called roanoke ridge yeah uh which is it's not, I mean, it's the first book, so it's not a prequel, but it's sort of, bef- it's how Laura gets her TV show, which is called yes. the Creature X right, right. TV series. Um, 
And so she's in a fictional town called Roanoke Ridge, Oregon. And there's been Bigfoot sightings mm-hmm. all over this, this area. And she has to try to get to the bottom of it while looking for uh, a professor of hers who is in the woods and he is missing. Okay. Um, the second book is Lake Crescent, which takes place uh, in Robert's Arm, Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I threw in some Can Con there and, and my father retired to Newfoundland for a while. So it was very close to where he was living. Great. And the third book is called Umboy Island, okay. uh, which is that island where uh, off the coast of Papua New Guinea, where supposedly a uh, glow in the dark pterosaur lives. Oh, okay. Those like what was it Macoli Membeke or how do you No, this is the Ropin. Um, oh, oh, oh the Ropin, okay. Yeah. Makeli Mbembe is the sauropod that apparently uh, lives in the Congo basin. Oh right, okay, okay. Ah, oh, Ropin. And then that's like a isn't that, isn't that like a pterodactyl or something? The Ropin? Yeah, so it's like a pterosaur, pterodactyl type yes. creature that's apparently bioluminescent. Um and it, apparently it used to when the indigenous people before they started burying their dead in um, wooden coffins, right, uh, right. which were brought to them by uh, you know colonial powers, they used to wrap the bodies in leaves. Okay. And apparently, a body would sometimes disappear because the rope and apparently would eat dead bodies. Oh, okay. Uh, which, I mean, if you're not using it, why not? <laughs> they right, sound yeah. like a pretty big animal, so they might need to eat what they can. All right, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I, no- I noticed in, yeah, in your first book, uh, Laura R- R- Reagan. Reagan, as in like the president. Why? What? Uh, why'd you go? Why'd you go with that last name? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'm I'm a diehard '80s Reaganomic Republican who believes okay. that poor people deserve it. No, I, <laughs> uh, she was very. I'm much hanging inspired. up right now. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's okay. So go ahead. <laughs> she she was very much inspired by Natalia Reagan. The oh. anthropologist and TV host who was on the Million Dollar Bigfoot Bounty, oh, okay. who did uh, a YouTube program called Talking Shit with right. Dr. Todd and, and Laura. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, yes. Laura, Natalia. Right, yeah. <laughs> now I'm confusing. But uh, she like very much inspired me as being a fairly modern kind of science communicator right. using okay. social media, blending okay. A TV personality in her education. Oh, very nice. Is that Todd was it Driscoll? Todd Todd O'Driscoll or something? Disotel. Oh, Disotel, right? Yes, yeah. He's been a guest at least once on Monster Talk, I think, and three times by hmm. my okay count, but it could be more because I know they did a few programs about the TV show. Uh, okay, big million dollar Bigfoot bounty. Yes, and then yes. I believe he was their first guest talking guest oh. talking about uh, Bigfoot DNA. Okay. Yeah, he like he does. He 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 will. It's like Bigfoot people bring him DNA. He will, or what? Or you know, like the, something they say. I think this is Bigfoot. He will. He will. Uh, I think he will. Like, uh, uh, you know, check out the DNA or something. He'll, he'll test it for them. So yes, but, after a certain screening process, I believe. Okay. Um, right. You don't want every sounds... crazy, right? Yes. Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, not even not even to say crazy, um, but just. When you don't know what you're looking for, right, yeah. you think everything could be evidence uh, when you when you really want to believe. Right. And, yes. and that's that's the kind of thing that that the, my books deal with, and that people, legitimate scientists in this field, have to deal with. Right. Yes. Yeah. I remember um, um, Sharon Sharon Hill. She had a she she has she 
has various interesting, I don't know if you know Sharon Hill. She's kind of like a skeptical geologist who I think she wrote a book. Uh, Delphal News was her. Story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Delphal News. That was, that was classic. I think she's just got really tired of the, the crank sort of that descended on it. But uh, yeah, she had a great story about, I don't think it was her, but someone uh, story about some guy just found a rock that, kind of vaguely resembled the human face and was convinced it was like a, a fossilized Bigfoot head and, and wouldn't tell him no, you know? Yeah. Interesting little story, but. Yeah. I think she talked about that on the episode that you did with her. Right. Yes. I probably, I probably did bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And she also mentioned the kind of right wing uh, misogynistic culture of uh, that. She, she encountered a lot in big footers, which really resonated with me because that's something that I try to cover in my book. And one of the reasons why I made my protagonist female is that it's hard enough being a skeptic sometimes when you're around true believers, but then um, being a woman in this particular culture, because the culture of Bigfooting and the culture of cryptozoology was really what appealed to me in writing these right. stories. Right. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. Yeah. So yeah. So Laura Regan, right? She she sort of starts as uh right, it's sort of a student, and then you you I like how you, you kind of promote her to a TV show and and uh you know and and of course you know the all I, I mean the the, the get a lot of commentary is that there's a lot of commentary about how uh you know history channel works and that sort of stuff like like you know the the token skeptic you know they will you know put on for 30 seconds and do you cover that aspect yes um and you see more and more of that as the book series go goes on and even in the third book the producer decides to add a young earth creationist to the team. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> um, because from a TV standpoint, you want, you know, you want to conclude with a very open-ended idea of, oh, right, maybe right. Bigfoot is out there. Whereas if you just had a room full of primatologists and anthropologists, they would tell you, it's like, okay, maybe we can't prove he's not, but 99.9% chance there is no Bigfoot. Right. Yeah. I, conflict. Yeah. Like it, some shows have to have conflict, right? It's like, uh, you know, it's like either that's a, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, uh, the, 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 the woman detective and her driver hate each other and then fall in love at the end or, or I, I'm, I'm the plot of moonlighting spoil spoilers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, or, or right, there's always got to be conflict, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems to be kind of something that TV shows. I mean, I used to write a, uh, don't hold it against me. Um, like, like most of my listeners and, and guests, I can say, I used to write a column for the Toronto sun and that means nothing to them. But if you live in Toronto, you're immediately going to think like, wow, you're a complete creep, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> I, I've written for Sun Media, so I'm okay. not. Okay. I used to do book book reviews. All right, yeah, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the Toronto Sun is kind of like. It, I mean, it's not like it's not like a, a as bad as a British tabloid, but it's you know it it kind of vectors that direction. But I always like to say, no, I wrote for the Sunday Sun, and the page three girl was moved to page seventeen. We were much more erudite on Sundays and. But uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, even my editor, I used to write about sort of net culture and my editor was always like, you gotta, you gotta really hate something like you just, all of your articles are too well reasoned, you know, it's like, you know, well, you know, this and that and and, 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 just, 
yeah i, I don't know uh yeah do you, do you have to deal with this do you deal with this you kind of deal with this in your book this 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 kind of like this 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 push and pull yes one of my one of the characters that readers seem to really respond to is the producer of the show uh danny who is very much only interested in ratings and right, making right. the show successful right and often that comes from conflict that comes from um you know you're you're focusing on the believers because people who just want to show about science don't necessarily sit down and watch something like monster quest they watch national geographic um even though i mean depending on which special you're talking about because i know national geographic has leaned into the kind of pseudoscience at certain <laughs> times uh including doing shows about bigfoot <laughs> but so so it's it's about making a show successful is what the producer is concerned about rather than necessarily educating the public. And so you do have that conflict uh, throughout the book. And especially, as I said, in the, in the most recent, uh, the third book, Umboy Island, they add a young earth creationist who is credentialed. He is a geologist and a paleontologist based on a real scientist who is both a paleontologist and geologist but also somehow believes that the earth is only 6,000 years old. Right. So, I mean, these conflicts exist in real life. Oh, yeah. It's rare, yeah. but I, I want to cover the whole kind of cast of characters in the world of cryptozoology. Cause it's so fascinating to me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I used to listen to this podcast about, um, uh, a guy was sort of former Mormon and, uh, and he used to sort of comedy. He's like, yeah, like Brigham Young, like all these, like, you know, professors of science and history and geology and and you know and they're all like yeah my discipline is correct and the mormon church has just kind of got it wrong but all those other guys are completely right about you know about you know evolution never happening and you know it's it's sort of like it's like they're, they're, they're yeah the, the, the ability to kind of compartmentalize like my very narrow aspect of science is right but you know Everybody else is wrong. These other sciences are wrong. And I find that is one of the more interesting things you can give to a character in fiction. It's it's frustrating in real life, but in fiction, these contradictions that make us um who we are is is why we read and why we try to dive deep into into mediums that give us a sense of character. Um there was a study a few years ago that talked about how often, you know, credentialed legit scientists um caught themselves using magical thinking mm -hmm. and it was the vast majority and that's something i try to to feature in the books that laura tries to catch herself um when she's thinking about luck or when mm -hmm. she's when you think that there's something supernatural watching you and and i do the same thing i the odd time you know you think like oh is there a ghost what did i hear and then you of course stop and realize like well, what are you thinking? Like what? <laughs> We've been acculturated to believe that there are supernatural forces at work, um, right. like luck, and then or fate, and then right. we have to kind of stop and think, like, no, it's probably a very random, godless universe in which we live. Yeah, I know. It's like my uh, my car, the, the seven years old, the starter is starting to not starter anymore. It's starting to go, and it's 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 
seems completely random. Like sometimes the car just woo, fires life, and other times it's like, and 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 sometimes it just doesn't start, and then I got to get it boosted, and and it's just it, yeah, it's like, okay, was I a bad person today? Is my car going to punish me for being a bad person and not start? Yeah, the, it is very. It's very easy sometimes to fall right into that kind of that magical thinking or, you know, it's like, uh, is it the way I've left the steering wheel? Is that causing it? And just trying to, trying to work out all the causes and stuff. You know, what, what, what could be causing this? And mechanics like, no, it sounds like your starter. I'll bring my car in on Monday. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, we, we are programmed for magical thinking. Right. And, and it's, that's why sort of science and skepticism, that's why it took us like, you know, 2000 years to develop, you know, real actual scientific method, because it's, 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 it's hard. We like telling ourselves stories. And that's yeah. something that I've appreciated that you mention on this show often when you're talking about conspiracy theories is that we create these narratives to kind of explain things yeah. that we don't have the answers for. So when it's something like your car starter, it's like, yeah, if you can cr- kind of weave together a narrative that might make sense to you, um, that fills that void that needs a story rather than, yeah. you know, immediately taking it to the mechanic, having him break it down for you and explain to you every little nuance that, yeah, exactly, so that you could better understand it. But I mean, I'm always like staying on the mechanic topic. I'm always sort of, it's like, I mean, the vast majority of people, if I went to the mechanic and said, why isn't my car starting? And the guy starts talking about demons, I would be like, I'm, I'm just getting another fucking mechanic, right? <laughs> you know, but, but the, the, a larger percentage of people, if I, you know, went to, you know, somebody else and was like, why is this happening to me? You know, demons. Ah, yes. Could sounds plausible like like it's it's very it's very weird in in that way that that the i i do like to analogize it's like like you don't know anything about a car but if a mechanic tells you it's the starter you're you're gonna believe you're okay with that you it's i mean it's good to have a little bit of skepticism with the mechanics but you know but and if the mechanic starts talking about demons you're getting the hell out of there and finding a new mechanic but but you know what but when it comes to like sometimes you know health or or you know matters of you know love or something like that people just boom. well yeah it's i mean and that that again is why writing books of this nature is so <laughs> fun for me because you're building that into the character what kind of person has had a certain lifestyle or upbringing that makes demons seem like right. a legitimate answer to what's causing, you know, troubles in their lives. Um, I haven't done this yet, but I've always been tempted to, you know, kind of put on like a costume of some kind, clothes that aren't mine and not wear my glasses, not right. wear my, my wedding band or anything and go to a psychic and give them ah, just yes. kind of a lie for a backstory and see what they're able to put together in a cold reading right? right yes, yes. And, and how they weave a narrative, like how they read me and think, okay, this is the narrative I need to weave for this person. Right. Um, and I will say that my, my father went to a psychic every so often. Okay. Uh, and it's something he just mentioned offhandedly to me and I never pressed him on it. Cause you know, this is when I was like 12, 13, 14 and 
And he'd say like, oh, you know, my psychic told me that you are going to become famous for doing Jimmy Durante impressions. And I was like, who's Jimmy Durante? Uh, now that I'm, you know, 40 years old, I know who yeah. Jimmy Durante is. Right. But as a teenager, I was, I was thinking maybe that was my first skeptical thought. I'm like, right. I really doubt that. Wow. No, that's he- going to happen. Like, do you, I mean, like, you know, when you kind of like look at like Lord of the Rings and Token, the amount of backstory Token wrote, you know, doesn't even show up in the novels. I mean, you know, subsequently, a lot of this stuff kind of comes out and, you know, Sun publishes and stuff, but, you know, he writes whole languages and whole histories and, 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 and none of that, only a fraction is in, in the book. Like, do you, do you have like a like your characters? Like, do you write have a whole backstory for your characters that that you know? And and you only surfacing a bit in in your book, or what? What what do you do to kind of like make your characters come alive? That really that really comes out in the rewriting process. Okay. So, all three of these novels were initially much longer. So mm-hmm. you write so many scenes where you right, get yeah. to know these characters, um, but given the the genre of mystery, you can't include, you know, a day at the beach where they don't do anything relevant to the plot. (laughs) So those scenes exist. They just have been cut. And that's really where you get to know the characters. And then, then they kind of just become a part of your life. You know who they are. You can kind of imagine them, but yeah, it's mostly kind of the cutting room floor sort of thing is where a lot of, the backstory has ended up. Well, when you become like Stephen King, right, you'll be able to just, it's 800 pages, publish it. You know? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't want that level. Uh, <laughs> I find editing and editors, that's where the best stuff comes from. Uh, I've said this about certain editors I've had in the past, that if yeah. I could put your name on the cover next to mine, I would, because yeah. what you've brought to the project, I, I find just so important and a good editor pushes you and makes you, and if you become too big to listen to an editor, then you're probably not writing very good stuff. I found uh, my, my Toronto sun calm. Like I had half a tabloid page, right. And it was about the editor said, you know, about 500 words, but it was more like five twenty-five, and, and, uh, and, you know, and I would just end up writing 625 words and just give it to the editor. And, she would cut stuff out, but I, but I did find that, you know, so I, I learned to kind of make sure I edited my own stuff down to about 525. And, and it is quite actually interesting, right? When you, you have to now figure out ways to say things in much more, you know, less wordy and how much better your writing is when you're like, you just can't write endless amounts of text that you are kind of limited in, in words. And you really do have to, think very hard about is that the best way to say that can i save three words over here by this one word you know i've taught the odd workshop about creative writing um to high school students mainly and one thing i'll say is a good exercise sometimes is to pick an arbitrary number and just cut that level of words so if you say 300 and you have a 3000 word piece Take out 300 words somewhere and it forces you to work harder Yeah, because when the writing flows initially and you get those pages out, 
you feel that it's all special because it flowed so easily. Mm-hmm. And then you have to look look back at it with a surgical eye and think like, okay, it may have came out easily that one day, but that doesn't mean it's brilliant or inspired right. or somehow especially valuable. So find what you can remove. And that tends to make it stronger. Um, when I, when I think of some of the best literary fiction, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Dennis Johnson and his short story collection, Jesus's son. And it's, they're very spare stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not trying to impress anybody with his vocabulary, but it's so effective because it, it can tell these stories of, you know, low income drug addict type people, mm-hmm. um, in a way that seems both magical and brilliant and it inspires you to write, but also it's not trying to be above anybody's head. It's not right. overly wordy. It's not wasting anybody's time. How, how, how many words are you generally limited to in your, your books? Uh, there's no limit um, okay. for, for novels uh, with my publisher Dunder and press. Okay. They were very supportive of this idea. Okay. Um, I know a few people who work for the press are very into the, skeptical but also mm-hmm. cryptozoological or it, it uh dunder and press publishes a lot about ghosts and ufos right 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 not as skeptical as i would like right but, yeah yeah uh, but they do they do believe in this kind of subject or not believe like they're not believers but they they see that there's value in this kind of mm-hmm. subject matter oh okay so yeah I, I mean but on average how much are your your books usually word i think they're about 85 Okay. Words. Okay. I mean, the first one, Roanoke Ridge, was much smaller. It was more okay. about 60,000, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, and then that was kind of proof of concept. It showed right. the publisher that it's like, okay, this works as a narrative. And right. Okay. Make it. Okay. And how, how long does it take you to write your books? I mean, your, your first draft, you know, it's like, okay, done. Now edit it or. I mean, I had about a year to write each book. Okay. Um, but that's also a year where I, I work a 40 hour a week job doing yeah. something else. Yes, exactly. So um, I might say three months to write a book okay. all in all okay. um, spread out. This is me using all my vacation days. A lot of my weekends. <laughs> I don't think my wife's too pleased when it's like, Oh, do you want to go somewhere this year? It's you now I'm going to take all my vacation time to sit at the computer and, Right. Write about a lake monster in Newfoundland. <laughs> My, uh, um, I, I've, I've written two books. Uh, the, the, well, I've written other books, but more recently I've gone the self-published route. So like my, uh, skeptics book of lists and now the conspiracy skeptics book of lists. And, uh, yeah. And, and on my dedication page, the first line is, uh, for my wife, uh, I would not have had the time to do this if not for you. So it is, uh, it is, it is, it is, it, yeah. If not for our wives, we would That's not have. It's very important to, to acknowledge that because just as I was saying, the editor is such a crucial part of making yeah. a book. Uh, my wife, uh, her support, being able yeah. to bounce ideas, being able to, you know, just have her read the draft and say, okay, this needs to yes. change. This isn't working. This is fantastic. Do more of that. Um, that, that is so important in the process. Right. Okay. All right. And uh, so how did you, uh, how, how did you, cause I mean, a lot of people are like, you know, everyone wants to write a book and, and, you know, but I mean, uh, uh, unless you go like the self-published route, you know, f- sometimes finding an agent or a publisher is just about 
you know, you, you're just never going to find anybody. How, how did you hook up with uh, Dundurn, Dundurn Press? Um, that's one of the kind of who you know rather than right. what you know situations. Okay, okay um, right, yeah. I was just fortunate to uh, know some editors who, with whom I've discussed this concept okay. who happened to know uh, the publisher at Dundurn and we were just having a conversation and and he said, oh, that sounds very interesting. Can you show me what you have? And right. and I did. And because I had pretty much the manuscript, the first manuscript was right, right. essentially ready to go. And he liked what he saw and he ran it by his team and they thought it was, you know, a good book and worthy of their efforts because right, okay. you realize you realize when you when you go through a traditional publisher, there are just so many people that mm-hmm. become a part of making this a reality. Uh and that that to me is it's 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 hard to navigate that, mm-hmm. but once you do it, it's worthwhile. And there there are people who have worked hard to sell this book who don't right. get it. Uh, they don't understand the world of cryptozoology, which has <laughs> right, right. made it harder to market. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it became like a whole team, and enough people believed in it to to push it out. So that right, okay. that's always it's an honor, and that's why I try so hard to be one of these authors who doesn't kind of sit back and let everybody right. else do the work because right. an author is expected it, as you know, getting the word out about your books that you have to do most of the heavy lifting or right. at least an equal amount of heavy lifting. Uh, I feel as, as my publisher does. Right. So yeah, they believe in it. You got to work hard to make it a reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, it, the, I mean, a traditional publisher, right. I mean, you know, they like, like print on demand with Amazon is just print on demand, but I imagine your publishers, you know, they'll print 5,000, 10,000 copies. It's it's an investment, right? Just just printing the books and then sending them out. And do they sell, not sell? You know, it's, um, yeah, it, it is a big investment. And and, and COVID didn't help yes. <laughs> uh, in that uh, my first book launch was at a pub on the Danforth. Very nice. And it was March 11th. Oh, yeah, I, I see where you're going. <laughs> so first I had a few people starting to text me saying like, oh, I don't think I can make it. There's that virus. Yeah. And and I was like, okay, that, that's fine. And then because uh, the pub is situated a few storefronts down from the Danforth Music Hall, the Music Hall, uh, I forget who's performing, but he was like a 1970s British prog rocker. All right. Uh, and they canceled it at the last minute. So yeah. I'm on my way to the pub and my agent texts me and he says, who are all these angry old guys? Did you invite them? And I didn't invite these these angry uh, gentlemen <laughs> who were upset they couldn't see their concert. Oh no! Um, and but but it's funny how they all left as soon as we started reading, and they're complaining oh. about how loud it was. And and I laughed because I'm thinking this is a reading, like you yeah. are going to a rock concert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why is this one louder than what you were expecting? But it was nice that they cleared out and made way for my friends and family who decided to come out. Oh, um, but but that was the last. Uh, I had another event booked actually in your in your hometown of Burlington. Oh, current, okay. Uh, at a different drummer books, which is a great okay. bookstore. Okay. Uh, so shout out to Ian at a different drummer. All right. Um, but then that got canceled, and then everything for the next two years uh, became impossible for me to promote these books yeah. that I'd worked so hard to get out. 
Wow. I, I mean, that's what was sort of, I mean, COVID was what kind of spurred me to write because, you know, I, my job was downtown and, you know, I would go train it. That's like the commuter train. And, and, you know, I would get up early in the morning because if you that past a certain time, it's just, it's just packed to the gills at people. And so, you know, when COVID hit and it's all work from home, you know, I'm still waking up at five 30 in the morning. And, and as I always like to say, I don't want to join the cult of, old angry men at mcdonald's who just you know and so i'm like i'm just i'm just gonna write a book and then and then i'm like what is kind of a fun and easy format and that's you know the, the book lists format is like it's just like i'm gonna write a bit about sea monsters today and ufos tomorrow and you know that kind of thing you just write in any order do, do you do you when you write do you just page one and all the way to the end or is there or do you, it's mystery. Do you, do you start first chapter, write the last chapter and then fill in between? Like, what is your, what is your, what is your method? Uh, I don't really have a method in that sense. I have a loose plot that I okay. use as a framework, okay. but then dialogue will come yeah. or a visual will come. Um, now all of these books have uh, what the editor and I call a cold open Okay. Uh, so like an episode of Law and Order when it starts out and you see the crime and then the credits right, yes, roll. Yes. Okay. Um so I usually take a a scene that happens later in the book and I put that right at the beginning. So you get a taste of what's happening and then you kind of catch up to it. So that's usually I that's where the most striking kind of visual uh that inspired the whole story. That's where okay. I, I tend to put that. Okay. So the idea of being on a boat in the middle of a cold uh, brackish water lake in Newfoundland and putting, you know, the remote controlled submersible into the water and like, you're just filming it and you see the grainy imagery on the screen and they think, Oh, are we going to see a giant eel? And then you see what is clearly a human skeleton at the bottom of the lake. And that's the opening. And that, that is sort of what I build the whole story around because then it's like, Oh, well, how do I get there? And where does that lead? And Uh, once you have an idea of victim, that's where the story kind of expands from because it's their character. It's what put them in that position where somebody had such a grudge or maybe it was even an accident. They just hit the body Um, and you figure out where, uh, and that kind of the story sort of expands outwards, both, I guess, into the future of solving the crime, but also in reverse of what led you to that crime and to that person right. being a victim. So I, I guess there is a, a mythology. <laughs> there is a method. To it. Okay. All right. But, I, I, the, um, I mean, we're sort of talking about, I mean, yeah, you are, you're writing about cryptids, skepticism, and a mystery, like three things that kind of, three very different kind of, you know, cryptid books, probably sell really well mysteries can sell really well skeptic books not so much but you know but, but putting them all together <laughs> i imagine suddenly becomes a very hard sell uh it is sort of kind of like an inside baseball uh okay. sort of concept so that was sort of difficult to like the marketing copy and yeah. finding the right people to read and review was sort of a challenge but the stories themselves, mystery is the heart of them. Mystery, you have kind of a, an an internal, like a closed mystery, mm-hmm. 
and then an open mystery. So the closed mystery is the crime itself, um, because it's in our nature to have to solve crimes that are sort of a threat to our society. Right. When you open up a door and you find a dead body in a room, that is becomes a threat to you and your community, and that needs to be solved. So I consider that the, the closed or kind of internal mystery to these stories. But the external mystery is that desire we as humans have to know, is there a creature at the bottom of the mm-hmm. lake? Is there a wild man in the woods who is like us, but not like us? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a prehistoric reptile that has somehow managed to survive for 65 million years when all other prehistoric reptiles from the Mesozoic era are extinct? Mm-hmm. So... It's it's combining these two and having them play off each other. Uh, that was the challenge. And and skepticism wasn't too hard to weave into that framework right. okay. because that skepticism and, and mysteries really go hand in hand, murder mystery novels, if you just kind of apply it that same way. Um, because, uh, you know, we rule out what is unlikely and then that helps us figure out what's possible, even right. if it's less likely, but it's still more possible than say, you know, a ghost was the murderer. And it's right. like, okay, if it's not a ghost, who else can get into this supposedly locked room or what what have you? Right. And uh and I've I found it played naturally um to to combine those elements, but that might just be me, somebody who's raised loving, you know, Sherlock yeah. Holmes when I was a kid, right. but also in search of when I was a kid. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I like to use, especially when you're sort of arguing with creationists, you know, the the were you there brand of creationists, like, well, no one saw, you know, uh, a uh you know, this thing evolve, you know, so I can just so you can't say anything useful. And I like to say, but you know, then using like 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 a like a murder, right? You know, that well, if that's the case, and we could never say anything useful, no one could ever be convicted of murder, right? Because very few people are actually ever there to witness the murder. You have to go based on evidence, you know, and, and decide what is reasonably true. And you have to, you know, th- sort of deductive knowledge and, you know, paralleling the, you know, th- those those two things. And, and so, I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's an interesting concept. It's, you know, do, do, do you try to draw that? That parallel between the 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 thought processes used to solve a murder and how maybe those processes are just wildly abandoned you know, for you know for people chasing the cryptid. I try to use that kind of investigation and that kind of reasoning to apply to both. So okay. Laura and her team will start out trying to apply that sort of reasoning to figure out if Bigfoot is real. Right. And then that ends up coming to help them solve the mystery because okay. it is that same kind of deduction that allows them to get closer and closer to who the actual killer is. Right. right. Um, but with, with the dead, the dead body kind of analogy that you're talking about, that's something I, I've used when I argue with uh, climate change deniers. Right. Right. Because the most common thing you'll you'll hear is like, oh well, if we only have good climate measurements for the last 200 years and then the paleoclimate measurements before that well how do we know mm-hmm. and and i always say it's like well if you come across a body that has three bullet holes in the side of the head it's like you don't really need to know if the person had a history of a, of a heart condition because it's clear <laughs> that the evidence is pointing to the three bullet holes in the side of the head and the massive right, yes. exit wounds at the other side 
Still, still, still could have been space aliens that shot him, though. So you just you can't say, can you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just have to make the best possible guess with the evidence. But the more <laughs> people don't invest themselves in the evidence and the process behind gathering that evidence, the easier yeah. it is. If you don't believe in carbon dating, then it's very easy to believe that something that was carbon dated up to fifty thousand years ago isn't accurate. Exactly. The um. Your, your your first one, uh, Roanoke Ridge. Now, I think you do this for all of your books. Your chapters have like a little little quote, and it's usually like kind of a nonfiction, something you've pulled out of some some factoid source. One thing I kind of liked about your your Roanoke Ridge book is uh, you really you really kind of very subtly turn the knife in some instances about like um like roger was it roger patterson like like you know you know man convicted of fraud <laughs> you know like you've got little quotes in there that that's sort of like yeah yeah you know no one really talks about that do they there's an arc in the the little quotes at the beginning of each chapter okay. um that i have chosen to first bring people into the culture because if you're if you haven't watched in search of if you yeah, haven't yeah. read these magazines and books um you don't really understand like that it is all it is a culture or a subculture and so i want people to understand where like a lot of the thought processes and the belief systems come from but then it gets to a point where it's like okay you have to sort of open the curtain and see that the wizard is just some old guy. Um, But uh, that I thought was, was something that was a challenge in itself, but a way of telling a story over top of the story I'm telling that you first, cause, cause when I was younger, I don't know that I ever really, what I'd call deeply believed in Bigfoot, Mm -hmm. but you watch, you know, a discovery channel program or an AE program and you think like, oh, well, there's a good line of evidence laid out in this show. So it is conceivable. And then you look into it and it's like, okay, well, this supposedly reliable witness we find out has a long history of hoaxing or yeah. is a con artist in, in other senses. And then this, you know, mysterious ha- unidentified hair sample uh, doesn't mean anything because it's you know, clearly not primate hair or most likely this, and they're just leaving it open-ended as unidentified. So the, the deeper you look into the actual facts of the matter, you realize there, there isn't enough evidence to, to draw any kind of conclusion. Right. Yeah. The, um, I like to you in your, uh, uh, your, your book about Cressy, Lake, Lake, Lake Crescent, the, uh, you, you quote Darren Nash in one of your chapters, which I just, he's a, uh, I think he's been a couple times on Monster Talk as well. He 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 writes a what was it a te- tetra tetrapod zoology? Is that his blog? That's his blog. And then there's the Tet Zoo Companion podcast. Right. Yes. Yes. But he does he does like to kind of write a lot about sea monsters and stuff like that. But again, that kind of like again sort of a lot like Monster Talk. You know, you can you can love the subject, but just because you like to research and write about sea monsters doesn't believe you really you think they really exist you know it's the yeah dr nash uh he reviewed a, my first book he was one oh, of the okay. blurbs um that i used and i sent him copies of the others and his book hunting monsters which is a non-fiction work 
has been extremely influential uh, for me to to look at uh, because cryptids are kind of a gateway drug to mm-hmm. science, yes. um, just as dinosaurs are uh, for for many of us. And so I, I try to look at cryptids in that framework and look at scientists like Dr. Nash, uh, Dr. Donald Prothero, right. people who look at these creatures and, and ask science-based questions. And I've tried to apply that to some of my nonfiction writing. I've written a couple articles for the Superstitious Times. Mm-hmm. And one of them was about uh, a creature who supposedly lives in uh, near Duncan, B.C., Okay. in a lake and i i happened j- just by the nature of the creature x books i happened to meet somebody who had an eyewitness encounter oh. with this supposed creature so i spoke to him and and i didn't see what he saw i don't know what he saw so i'm not trying to label him a crazy or or that mm-hmm. you know he was drunk or he didn't know what was going on i i don't know but because it's you know duncan bc is not the most isolated part of BC. It's a pretty populated okay. area. So, and they have fishing derbies there every year. And so you just do a little bit of background and you realize that of provincial biologists have done surveys of the lake. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk to one of those biologists, which I did. And I asked her the kind of questions that we should be asking when we consider these phenomenon, like, what would you like ask a biologist? What would you look for, for a sign of a, a large creature, most likely a predator? Where would we find it in the lake? Where could it hide? Um, what would would there be enough food in that lake to sustain something like that? Because that's that's a big question with Bigfoot, for example. <laughs> of, I mean, is there enough food in the Pacific Northwest to accommodate like a large primate like that? And it's like, well, yes, there's enough food because we know large bears live <laughs> out there. But does that mean we should expect to see? Um, would we expect to see Sasquatch or Bigfoot fishing, getting a lot of its its nutrition from salmon? Why don't we see them near the water or near the rivers? Uh, and and that was the same with this. Ch- uh, Sinqua was the name of this lake monster that okay. uh, Duncan Lake uh, Cowichan in near Duncan, BC. And I asked the biologist, "It's like, well, where would you expect to see a large kind of predatory?" Uh, creature and she was saying well it would follow the other fish the trout uh so we would expect to see it in the same kind of shallow waters because although the lake is deep it's not very nutrient rich the further uh down you go so you'd expect this creature to turn up at all the fishing derbies or where all the fish (laughs) congregate throughout the uh throughout the year and that's that's how i think we should be looking at these these uh creatures and that's the kind of field biology and sort of scientific thinking that i uh, i mean we can apply to cryptids and hopefully that would interest people in caring about the other act well the, i shouldn't say actual animals the animals that we can prove and that we have type specimens and that we we can see with reliable yeah. uh video footage and yeah exactly it's it's like you know when real kind of you know biologists want to find a creature and it can be even something small like a part you know a an insect you know and uh you know we think there's this insect in the jungle and it is causing disease 
they can find it. Like, but again, but they use that kind of detective work. You know, where should it be? You know, where should it live? And and they 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 can zone in on where it is, and then they can find it. And 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 it's like when you've been looking for a Bigfoot for. 70 years, you know, 100 years, and supposedly the people that go out looking are, you know, the world's greatest trackers and hunters and woodsmen, you know, if you listen to them, and they never turn anything up, it's like, maybe it just doesn't exist, you know, at some point, how many times you got to search your living room for an elephant before you decide, I don't think there's an elephant in my living room. Well, that's one of the things that pointed me in the direction of doing Cressy, the giant eel that supposedly right. lives in, in Lake Crescent, was I wanted to pick a cryptid that I thought, okay, under certain scientific principles, it, it might exist. And and that's what really led me to, to that creature. So the lake it supposedly lives in does connect to the ocean. Right. So it is possible that you have ocean congers and other large eels able to get in to this lake. So it's not like most lake monsters we hear about. They're in isolated lakes in the middle of nowhere, which you wouldn't think you could have such a large creature evolve. So, okay, it's possible to get a larger eel. And some people have speculated that if the eel isn't spawning, if it's stuck in a lake, it's just going to grow larger and larger. So that, and I'm not saying that this is likely. I'm saying <laughs> it's within the realm of possibility. Right. And furthermore, eels can live a very long time. So you can have one individual um, be seen by, you know, more than one generation. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, uh, objects in water are often not, we're not good at uh, uh, ascertaining the scale of a, of a creature in water. Mm-hmm. So if you see say, a six-foot-long eel that you're not expecting to see. So you're kind of scared. It's kind of in the water. Chances are that's going to become a 12-foot-long eel in your imagination. Uh, And that's what you're going to tell people. So, again, it's I don't think necessarily that uh, Cressy, as people have described it, exists, but that's within the realm of possibility. Now, the book kind of concludes that it's more likely just logs because it used to be a logging route. Uh, (laughs) And that's most likely when people describe something just coming up to the surface and just kind of vibrating and then disappearing again, that sounds an awful lot like a log that's been raised by gases being off gassed as it rots. And then once those gases are released into the air at the water surface, it just plummets down again. That is more likely. Or, I mean, there's all sorts of, things we can misidentify in water. So human error is probably the culprit, but I wanted to create or or have a cryptid that, you know, is legendary, is real, (laughs) but also is within the realm of possibility, whereas something like a rope inferring instance, Mm -hmm. uh, like a pterodactyl that glows in the dark that manages to, you know, has survived all these millions of years, that not very much right, in the realm of possibility. Right. And that's why it's such a favorite for uh, young earth creationists. Yeah. I mean, they definitely have this and it's no matter how many times you explain it to them. Well, well no, that's not the case. They, they do. They are, they are convinced that if they can find a living dinosaur, this will disprove all of evolution because, you know, those scientists said they, they went extinct millions of years ago and 
they're still alive so the earth must be young like like that's this bizarre kind of twisted logic versus like all right cool something you know like like a coelocanth something just survived in a very limited geography great (laughs) yeah it's uh, i mean i was something i was gonna ask you i know it's your show i was gonna gonna ask you um i see a lot of the cryptozoology culture and the conspiracy theorist culture as being faith communities yeah that kind of um replace uh the you know the devout christianity that maybe existed amongst that same demographic of people and the young earth creationists is where uh there's that kind of like venn diagram overlap yeah because there's sort of conspiratorial thinking that yeah because it's never just that scientists are just wrong it's always that they're hiding something yes yes um but but do you feel it sort of uh especially conspiracy theories now do you kind of see replacing almost faith or standing in for faith communities yeah i've got two comments about that uh one is um the um right like like when i was writing my my second book the i did skeptics book a list was just a general book of skeptical topics and then i'm like okay and i'm going to do conspiracy skeptics book list or i'm really focusing on just conspiracies Mm -hmm. but almost anything in the paranormal cryptozoology has a conspiracy element to it, right? Those scientists are not telling us what we need to know. So, so you know, it, it was very hard to sort of write, like trying to figure, you know, how, finding a bright line between, you know, is this just someone's not telling you enough and therefore conspiracy versus like, like, so I, you know, I'm trying to like what I call like, like the hidden world, you know, that the invisible made visible, uh, you, you know, that, that there's, there's, there's kind of a, a a world we see, and then there's a world underneath that you know that as uh, you know uh, you're in publishing, you see a whole world that we don't see, right? And and there are good reasons why that exists, but then it's very easy to layer conspiracy on top of that if you just don't know what that why there's something why things are being done the way they are. So 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 yeah, um, so so right, it, it is. It, it, any almost anything in the world of paranormal or cryptozoology you have you know there is there is an element of conspiracy there but i guess more more to your point very subtle way of plugging my own book which just came out on amazon by the way but, uh, very, uh, i fed you the line so yeah. i'm as guilty as you are yeah. you're, you're a writer you know you know, i know some, how this works sell some books then but um more mortgage rates are going up sell some books but um uh, more to the point, yeah, I mean, coming back to COVID a bit too, right, right, that, I mean, the rise of QAnon is a brilliant example of what kind of happened, I think, that, you know, churches are shut down, people can't go to their churches, so they just discover some other magical system to kind of replace what they were getting from that, you know, from from the pulpit, and 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 yeah, so 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 as people kind of like, Right, I think as they, they sort of like like sort of abandon a, a more of a mainstream uh, faith, they 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 find a new magical system. And right, right, Bigfoot or or uh, UFOs or you know you know the idea that that you know you know Democrats are kidnapping children and eating them. Right, right. It all just it's yeah, it's the new faith. Well, yeah, cryptozoology and Bigfoot. That's like 
Presbyterians, whereas, you know, <laughs> QAnon, that's your Catholic, that's your Catholic, that's your fire and brimstone. Um, no, but seriously, I, I mean, I don't actually know anything about Presbyterianism and my family's more Catholic. So I'm not, that's nothing personal to the Catholics out there. Uh, oh, who, who, who's that author that wrote, uh, was it Name of the Rose? Um, Umberto Echo. Umberto Echo. Yeah. He, he was famous for doing an essay, like, you know, because back in during the early days of computers, like IBM and Apple and comparing them to religions and, you know, you know, Apple is, are Catholics and PC users are Protestants and to come up with these sort of analogies. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a. Well, in seriousness, what what I sort of mean by that is that something like QAnon, there is very much like a moral righteous struggle. Mm-hmm. There's a clear good and a clear evil. And yeah. it's like the, the conspiracy theorists or the followers are, it gives them that sense of like the, that they're part of some righteous crusade. And and if you're if that's the kind of you know fire and brimstone religion you want, like they have it, um, and that's that's stri- that's striking me more recently. Whereas when I was you know much younger, I was never a conspiracy theorist, but I was conspiracy theory kind of like sympathetic. I, mm-hmm. I would say like, oh, you have something to tell me about the Kennedy assassination? Okay, I'd like to hear that out. Right, right. Because it's an interesting plot, and yeah. it has no, to me, it has no impact on my current existence. Right. Whereas when you start telling me that, like, you know, Justin Trudeau is a part of some globalist, aka Jewish conspiracy uh, right. to control the world and make us pay a, a a carbon tax and that somehow going to fund <laughs> the new world order. Uh, I can't help but think like, okay, that's, that's not a, that's not fun. And B, you don't need any proof to, to <laughs> assert that you're just believing it, that somebody's telling you that the guy you kind of don't like is pure evil. That makes you feel as though you're pure good or yeah. you're the hero in this narrative. And you're probably not. Well, you know, he's Fidel Castro's Ill- illegitimate son. You know that, right? So yes, <laughs> I don't get that. Like, that's yeah i that i have i'm not uh a justin trudeau supporter or voter i i tend to be a little bit more left-wing than that right, right. but there's nothing conservatives in this country can do it's the same with uh, the way republicans were with obama um I, I mean even to an extent with with biden and and i mean of course hillary clinton it's like the more they're telling you that this person is so unreasonably evil the more you have to be like, well, no, they're not unreasonably evil. Like, I don't necessarily agree with this. And yeah. and we should be able, like, a conservative and myself should be able to agree on the things we don't like about the prime minister. As in any democracy, yeah. you should be able yeah. to have a discussion. But when you think that he's part of some evil globalist cabal, yeah. I can't join you in that because there's no evidence of it. So yeah. why don't we just talk about how if you feel that he is somebody who makes promises he doesn't keep. Right. Um, or may, perhaps he talks a good game about climate change, but then we'll still give billions of dollars to fossil fuel companies or pipeline mm-hmm. companies. Right. Uh, we should be able to talk about that. Yeah. If you want to say that he's a hypocrite on climate, a conservative and I should be able to agree on that. Yeah. But then they they pull out you met, were jokingly mentioning Fidel Castro or this sort of thing. It's like, come on, like yeah. can't we just have a healthy democracy with healthy debate rather than conspiracy theories? Uh, yes, I mean it'll maybe hearten many of my American listeners that that the I always say that you know the the idea that Canada is your escape hatch to sanity that 
that door is narrow, closing, <laughs> closing quickly. You know that uh, uh, you know we may be next election cycle kind of electing our own sort of you know right wing crazy who you know I mean this guy who sits with neo Nazis and you know breakfasts with them. Uh, you know it, it. I mean, say what you want about the old Reform Party, but you know they had the good sense at one point to go let's kick all the Nazis out because they had just become like the, the, the home to all the neo-Nazis and, and, and they did jettison those, those people from the party, or at least try to, you know, uh, um, now it's like, now it's, now it's the base, you know, it, it's, 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 it's really depressing, but yeah. Well, I but, say on and environmental issues, when you look at acid rain, when you look at the hole in the ozone, yeah. these were things that Brian Mulroney, a conservative prime minister uh, helped, uh, put measures in, in place yeah. to kind of take care of that. So it wasn't always so, yeah, so I don't want to use the word crazy, but so unreasonable a response to say government fixing a problem. But we have, I mean, not to blame your American listeners, but we definitely import as much of that Republican uh, mindset yeah. as, yeah. and I should say, I should say, radical republican uh more the marjorie taylor green kind of yeah. stuff rather than i don't know any reasonable republicans anymore but they used to be out there yeah. we'll just say um, less john less john mccain more marjorie marjorie taylor green yeah. they're, they're still out there but it's it's yeah I, I mean even i mean on the left too i mean it, it's the the, the litmus tests you know that 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 then we're, we're we've compressed it down to certain uh litmus test you know, what is a true you know what is a true you know progressive what is a true conservative and, and if you don't sign on to these five things or these four things then then you know i got no time for you and and I, you know i mean my own biases on the left they're a little bit more reasonable they're not like you know you have to believe in satanists who have tunnels under the earth where they're consuming children like like you know or or you know obama you know was a muslim you know not a america you know like like there's all these bizarre litmus tests but you know every side has them but we're we're, we're kind of like i don't know if that's because the the internet these days that, that we just we, we just we just have no time so we have to we can't spend time thinking about these things so we have to think do you check these three boxes off yes and you are the true liberal you are a true progressive you're a true conservative i don't know well i will say it seems that the right wing is better at um kind of putting their differences aside and working towards a common goal so you can be a fundamentalist christian who you know you can be a mike pence and still work for donald trump yeah, yeah. You can do you can do that. Whereas I'd like to think, and I, I don't know that it's that we're more principled on the left because probably not the case. But it's just like the left. One thing you'll hear the internet trolls often say is like, "Oh, I love it when the left eats itself." Right. Right. Yes. And exactly. I I actually do. I like that we disagree and yeah. that we can have. Maybe it means that we're not the best at forming a coalition to take power. But when it comes to rational discussions, right. you want somebody who's willing to say a, an opinion that they can back up and you can back up yours. They just happen to be contrary. And 
or you know a lot of people think that we should go further and right. and cut off any fossil fuel use say in the next 10 years whereas others will say no we need something a little bit more reasonable in <laughs> terms of allowing us to accommodate and that's fine uh as you say yeah i don't think there are any like kind of litmus also when it comes to litmus tests I'd like to think, even though obviously like racism, anti-Semitism, all that exists mm-hmm. on the left as well, uh, it's something you know to kind of keep quiet. And yeah. that's I'm not saying it's good that you keep it quiet. It's you're not good that you have it at all. But it seems like there's a certain coded language that the right has kind of mastered where you can just <laughs> outright say globalist when you mean Jew or right, George yeah. Soros when you exactly. mean uh, the or um what are the other banking families that we constantly Rothschild, 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 yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. And it's like, come on, like I know what you guys mean, and it's the same conspiracy nonsense yeah. that we Christians have used for the last two thousand years. Like, <laughs> get something new, at least with shape shifting reptilian aliens. That's you know, that's a little bit more exciting. They're, than, they're still, uh, Jew- they're still Jews, man. <laughs> that's it's like, can't we like, can't we find somebody else? Something and new. Like, yes. And then it's like, it'll become the Muslims. And then you get into that. And then it's like, oh, but the Jews are controlling that. It's like, oh, guys, can we not? <laughs> exactly. Can we just, like, the only minority that has a disproportionate amount of control on your life is, like, the ultra-rich that can afford lobbyists and that sort of thing. Like, don't. Yeah. And they yeah. probably just look like you in nicer clothes. You know, it's not some kind of. <laughs> You've mentioned in search of a few times. And and, and I, I guess you were. I mean. I'm gonna. People can't see you on camera, but you say you're 40. You, you know, you, you do look like about 28. So, and, and <laughs> well, I'm gonna warn you now. Gonna warn you now. I had that like 28 year old look into my 40s. You hit your 50s, boom, it's all gone. So, <laughs> I, I I can't show you the gray that's starting to come in on my light brown hair. Yeah, but it's, uh, exactly, it, it's all gonna it's all gonna it's all gonna hit you all at once. So, uh, in, 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 enjoy looking like you know late like 20s, early 30s, through your 40s. It's cool, but yeah, you're gonna you're gonna, you're gonna hit 50, and then it, it it will. It's like the you know the Dorian Gray painting, right? You know that's just yes. <laughs> I I will say. Uh, in search of was on in syndication on A and E in the afternoons. Uh, uh, so okay. that's where I did not. I can't pretend that I watched it when it initially premiered. Yes, yes, okay, yeah. I, 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 I like to think I probably saw it first run because it was like in the late seventies, early eighties. So I mean, definitely, I was alive and watching TV and remember watching it and and uh, and uh, you, you're you're listening to uh, Blake's other podcast uh, in research of. I haven't. Uh, actually, no. I listened to one episode so far. Okay, but uh, I'm I'm a true believer, you know, die in the wool conspiracy skeptic fan. So if you're going to listen oh, to one okay. podcast, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I always say, yeah, if you're going to listen to one podcast. Don't listen to mine. Listen to like Monster Talk in in research of. Oh yeah, you do have to listen to in research of because it is such a it's a wonderful trip down memory lane and and. And, and maybe your memories of it are a bit more recent, but it's actually interesting. And Blake and um, Jeb Card both kind of, I think, sort of admitted this. It's like, they're like, wow, there weren't as many episodes about UFOs and Bigfoot and sea monsters as our memories told us. You know, that 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 the, the Bigfoot, the cryptid episodes are very few in UFO episodes are very few and far between. It's, it's very interesting, actually. 
Yeah. I, I mean, because although I do remember watching the episode about say auras where you had the guy right. looking through the different colored like yes. bottles of different colored liquids, it's like, that's not going to stick the yeah. way uh, the Loch Ness monster. Yes, exactly. Is. But we do have, uh, there's an episode I watched on YouTube recently because I've had climate change deniers bring up that global cooling episode. Yes. Yes. Of in search of, and, and so when, when, at, when somebody first mentions it to me, I'll be like, you mean the Bigfoot show? Like you're talking <laughs> about a show that thinks the Nazca lines were carved by, either by aliens or for aliens. Yes. Um, and locked Ness monster. So are you saying that those subjects are credible if that's your source material? Yeah. But then I ended up, re-watching the episode because i'm sure i saw it when i was younger and you think it's like okay i can see why you would believe this as a source <laughs> if you're motivated to believe that against like what the vast majority of science and you know publicly available research papers are telling you yeah yeah i mean uh yeah i mean every now and then when reading old you know old non-fiction books and stuff like that like oh Wow, Isaac Asimov was talking about global warming and like this this you know speculative work of nonfiction in like you know 1957. Like like yeah, like this is there there was a very there was a very brief time where it became in the popular press very fashionable. To think we're slipping into a new ice age, but right, but but that was not the that was not the the thinking at all, right? Yeah, they've done meta studies about the published papers of the yeah. time, and more climate experts were leaning towards warming rather than cooling. Now, global cooling had a basis in reality, so it's kind of a good example of where things can go wrong. So, for example, we we saw that air pollution, um, sulfites in the atmosphere, uh, sulfates, sorry, um, caused the sunlight to be reflected back into space. <laughs> And we still see this in parts of the uh, industrialized world where they don't have clean air acts and clean air policies, where areas around certain like in industrial regions will have will be slightly cooler. Mm -hmm. So if you just take that and kind of extrapolate like, oh, well, if it gets even worse, then this might happen. It's like that's how the human brain works. Mm -hmm. We we typically do that. Um, so I can see why why this would become something that you know, a magazine would want to run and sensationalize yeah. just as I can remember global warming stories where, you know, a magazine or the graphic would be tidal waves kind of rushing by <laughs> the empire state building or something um, because sensation <laughs> sells papers. Uh, yeah. You used to write for the sun, you know, this, yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually, I can't, I can't speak to all of the sun right now. 19 year olds in bikinis though, sell way more than, I, I am trying to get the uh, former editor in chief and current uh, columnist Lori Goldstein to do an interview with me. Oh, so, geez. okay. <laughs> because he actually interesting kind of cryptid news. He wrote a story in the 1970s about the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster. Yes, I wrote about uh, that. I wrote about that in my book. Yeah, and and he's like the kind of patient zero of that's oh. where the whole thing came from. A piece he wrote in the 1970s. And so I've been trying to not only learn more about the tunnel monster, right, but right, yeah. I'm trying to look at the environment. Like, what was the newsroom like? Right. What yes. was it like to be assigned such a story? What was it like writing such a story? Because essentially, he created an urban legend. Yes, um, yes. Fairly localized in Toronto. I don't know that too many people outside of the city know of it. Yeah. 
But I'm writing a piece for the Superstitious Times right now on the Cabbage Town Tunnel Monster, right. and I'm hoping, uh, you know, he he seemed open to doing it, okay. um, and so I'm hoping I'll be able to get a chance to to kind of chat with him. Okay. But just back to what I was saying about kind of global warming for a second, it's like yeah, sensation taking mm-hmm. something that's real and making it sensational to get public interest. That's unfortunately how. A lot of science right. has lost credibility because it's not the scientist's fault. It's the media trying to communicate that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, the tunnel monster thing, I think that that found its way, I believe, into the world of UFOlogy as well. There was a guy, Commander X. Um, yes. yes. I have I mean, read his book. Okay, I think I think he mentions the tunnel monster because he had this <laughs> he had this whole idea there's an alien city under like under Hooker Harvey's, basically. Yes. <laughs> if, yes. Not, if you don't live in Toronto, you got no idea what the hell Harvey's is or what Hooker Harvey's is. It's kind of the downtown, what we would call a stroll, where where the, the street walkers kind of operate. And then the, there's a fast food restaurant called Harvey's, which is kind of there where, you know, winter they go to warm up and use the bathroom and, and Hooker. It's still there amazingly. It's not Church been, and Gerard. Yeah, Church and Gerard, right. Had this whole idea there's an underground city under there. By way of evidence, that intersection has some of the highest accident rates in Toronto. So there must be some magnetic anomaly still operating under there that is causing, I guess, cars to <laughs> have unnatural attractive forces and crash into each other. Although, it is not, in fact, it's not even the top 10 of most dangerous intersections in Toronto. I was about to point that out. I was about to say, try to find a source that verifies that is that dangerous an intersection because yes. I couldn't. In researching this piece, um, I, I like to look at these kind of stories as like snowballs. So mm-hmm. you understand what gets added when and how yes. kind of far it's rolled down the hill to get to that size. So that's one of the the... The alien base thing. Yeah. Also, they um, some people have said that this tunnel monster, this creature that is about, about the size of a, uh, a large monkey, right. that this man named Ernest, no last name, supposedly witnessed. Um, some people have said, oh, it sounds like the indigenous legend of the Memaguesi. And if there's, there's nothing that bothers me more than like just randomly trying to pluck something from another yes. culture yes <laughs> and it's like oh well this must be that because it was in a tunnel and this water spirit kind of sounds like <laughs> yes. roughly it's like well if you ask any anything sounds like what he's described it could have been a raccoon which the city is full of except it spoke to him that was the only the eyewitness said he had a, not a conversation but he was warned off by this creature but well, what yeah. he what he described, kind of like monkey-sized eye shine, so not a great ape or, or a human. Um, I mean, it's city of Toronto. Anybody knows we're like the raccoon capital of the world. <laughs> so, I mean, that would be my first guess. And if he said he saw it like sitting upright and had hands, it's like I've seen raccoons behave very much like us. Joe Nickel would say it's an owl, I think. But uh, <laughs> I love Joe Nickel. <laughs> he loves his owls, though. Which... It's either... It's either yeah. an owl or it's a bunch of otters swimming yeah. in a line. Exactly. And he's probably right 90% of the time. But, I mean, that, that as you were saying earlier about, you know, it's a log that floats up and down, right? Like, it's not, – not only is it hard to, to disabuse people of their 
their their fantasy story, but now you're offering them a log, right? <laughs> you know, it's very, it's very, you know, I know the the I know what I saw types, and it's like people don't want to necessarily right abandon the idea that there's this ancient monster under the water that you know that that you know that indigenous people have known about for centuries and and you know it's just a log and that's the thing the real explanation also kind of makes you feel like an idiot um because you think of i mean i'd imagine the emotional weight of seeing something and then feeling that perhaps your life was in danger um and all these emotions that go along with with the sighting of, of something uh, so extraordinary. Right. And then when you find out, I mean, I mean, it's just like when you're a kid and you think there's a silhouette and there's like maybe a person and you turn the light on and it's just the lampshade or what have mm-hmm. you, you feel kind of foolish. And so I'd imagine as an adult, um, you you have that same foolishness. So it's almost easier to dismiss a guy like Joe Nickel, who who I, I, I love his work. Yeah. I'm yeah. Not, I'm, had a few jokes about him, but no, I I, yeah. I I think he's he's the real deal. Um but yeah, you have to think of like people's emotions because it's the emotions that get in the way of us just coming to the you know reasonable conclusion that okay, it's most likely not a giant ape man or, or like a bipedal ape-like creature that is unknown to science that I just happen to find in my backyard in Arkansas or uh Michigan or all these places where the Bigfoot seems to have expanded. Um, because these legends seem to be almost contagious. Like once you're expecting to see something or that you think something's in the realm of possibility, you will start identifying mis- it'll, it'll, It's like, it adds to your repertoire of misidentification. Right. Yeah. I'd be coming back to your point about, you know, the left eats its own. I, I mean, one of the things I hate is the, you know, what, where people write off, what maybe you're doing and, you know, monster talk is doing like Bigfoot skepticism, you know, that, that, that there's this idea that as skeptics, we should all be working on global warming or, or, um, you know, or, uh, you know, big pharma over prescribing, you know, uh, certain drug, you know, we should be all working on this and, you know, not wasting our time on Bigfoot skepticism. Well, do you, what would you, would you have to say to someone who says, you know, who disparages, disparages Bigfoot skepticism and go ahead and define it as well for, for, Oh, I, I would say just listen to the, re-listen to this podcast and everything <laughs> I've set up to this point, because um, what, like what I'm talking about is like scientific concepts uh, right. and ways to get people interested in science. Right. So when, if, if my books can help you perhaps get interested in the outdoors and going outdoors, yeah. then you're going to un- kind of understand these processes that I think will help you understand um, the need to preserve habitat, the need to especially preserve certain kind of wetlands or something that serves as an effective carbon sink. Um, these ways that we can work within mm-hmm. what we have to kind of reduce our, our carbon footprint I think the more you're out there and kind of understanding these principles, the easier it is to um, understand something like climate change. So if Mm -hmm. I just sat here and lectured you about climate change, you might tune me out. Mm -hmm. But if I can kind of sneak some science in the back door by just talking about, say, the carbon cycle in relation to something else, it might get you thinking. Um, So if we just talked about, for example, if I 
and maybe I will write something pertaining to the greenhouse effect, not um, climate change, right? but just so people understand that it's like, there is a natural barrier that <laughs> keeps in a certain amount of infrared radiation around the planet. And we're just adding to that. So mm-hmm. it's not some kind of fantastic, because you you have a lot of people say, oh, no, CO2 is plant food. We need this. Why are you saying it's a pollutant? <laughs> right. It's like, no, it's just we're kind of changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. Yeah. And we're just tweaking it a little bit. But that little bit that we're doing has massive impacts. Yeah. So you try to get people thinking in in a, in a more scientific scientific way. But that, that reminds me of... Um, one of the first reviews uh, I received on Goodreads okay. for my first book, Roanoke Ridge, was it was still four out of five stars. But the one complaint this gentleman okay. from the U.S. had about it was uh, Dupuis talks about liberal ideas as though they're fact, including climate change. And I just that put such a <laughs> smile on my face because he was a nice gentleman who said nice things about the rest yeah. of the book. Yeah. But just this idea that, you know, su- certain fields of science are liberal ideas yes yes and and that's that's what we have to disabuse people of it's just like i i see where they get to this liberal idea because <laughs> they're looking a few steps ahead thinking like oh you're trying to control what fuel sources i use yeah and it's like no let's let's try to come up with right-wing solutions uh free market solutions i mean of course we did that with a carbon price but then that has somehow turned left-wing too yeah <laughs> Uh, you mentioned the Reform Party earlier. Preston Manning, founder of the Reform Party, was a big proponent of a carbon tax or carbon pricing. I forget exactly what his scheme right, was. Right. Uh, I don't mean scheme as an evil scheme, conspiracy right. theorists out there. I mean his pricing scheme. Um, actually, I doubt conspiracy theorists listen to your show. I think they see the thing, they stumble in because they know. I, I, I mean, I don't look at my iTunes reviews, but... I think, yeah, yeah. There are there are a couple that I think have sort of listened in, thinking maybe it wasn't about wasn't a, about skeptical about conspiracies, and and, and yeah, and you do kind of get the, the occasional one star review or something, but yeah, don't don't, I, you know, we do this for the love, not for the, uh, you know, I think mean, I think mean, I always say, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I say, you know, if um. As a Canadian author, I like to joke if you can if you make enough from your book to pay for your next oil change, you have done really well. Like like you you know, and uh that yeah, that no truer words. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we're not we're not doing it for the the money. It is, you know, for just it's it's just it's nice. You just get your words out there and if you can if you can make seventy bucks a month or ten dollars a month. I um I, I've had some interesting people speak to me about these books, including mm-hmm. uh, the Archduke of Austria, whose actual job right now is he's the Hungarian ambassador to the Vatican. Okay, he's a fan, fan of cryptozoology. Okay, and uh, we've developed this, this guy's real. Not he's not like he's not like an Emperor Norton type, right? This is this is an actual no no. Archduke. This is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, the actual art. Yeah, I didn't believe. I I definitely like vetted. I'm like, okay, well, yeah. I mean, you have like fifty thousand Twitter followers. Like, that's got to be legit. Okay. Uh, but uh, no, I've looked into it, and and interesting to, to talk to this gentleman. But he he's also said he's like, well, you know, can't you put like real monsters in? Like, can't you have it? Like it, 
And I mean, he's a, a devout Catholic, so he's good at yeah. believing stuff you yeah. can't necessarily prove. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't want to ruin the skeptical nature of the books by all of a sudden like putting like, oh, this one's real. Though I will admit there are a few creatures that I've planned for future volumes <laughs> that um, there is enough of real. For example, I, I won't spoil too much, but we do see enough. Uh, for example, in the Everglades, of people releasing exotic pets, right, right. that you might come across something monstrous yeah. uh, compared to what you're expecting. So right. there was a DNA, te- an environmental DNA test a few years ago in the Everglades that picked up some traces of Nile crocodile DNA. Oh, okay. So I don't know if that's been verified. Like it could right, be right. one of these. You know, there no scientific study is perfect, but uh, there's there's it gives you the sort of idea of like, well, what happens if, you know, somebody has actually like had a tiger as a pet and then releases it in a warm enough climate that might be able to sustain it. Uh, yeah. A few years ago in Toronto here, we had somebody release a caiman. So a small crocodilian okay. into high, into high park. Okay. And it survived in the summer months because there's right. a lot of fish. There are a lot yeah. of birds. There are uh, small mammals. But it was eventually captured, and I think right. you could go see it on display oh. in Richmond Hill or Vaughn or one of these places where there's a – I'm not going to plug the name of the reptile zoo, but there's a reptile zoo. I believe it's a <laughs> private business. But they actually had on their billboards, like, now home to the High Park Cayman. Oh, wow. Um, but it goes to show you that there are – you know, I could – I hike through the the valleys and the parks of this city regularly, and I wouldn't. I would be absolutely shocked if I saw that somebody had released. Even though a caiman's a small creature, I'm sure it would be three times the size. Once my imagination and fear, uh, but that's that's one thing. Being in the outdoors as much as I am, uh, I misidentify things all the time. Right, right. I often. I mean, you, you know, you look at something long enough, you figure out what it is. But out of the corner of your eye, it's very easy to misidentify, uh, like, you know, an upright dead tree. So it has no branches. It's kind of, it's odd shape right. because pieces of it have been torn off. Uh, looks like it's like a big creature, a bear. If you see that, it looks like it might be something large. I can remember as a kid, I lived in a small, briefly lived in a small town outside of the city called Locust Hill. Right. As, as walking my dog just down the back of our property and there are train tracks on one side and, and, you know, thickets of trees. And my dog started behaving strangely. And I swear on my life that I saw like the curved, what looked like a shoulder of a person, right. a white t-shirt going around a bush. And I couldn't see through. And I thought, what's this person doing on my property? And then by the time I got around the corner with the dog, uh, a white tailed deer stag jumped oh. out and then oh, ran. Okay. And so the that kind of curve of what I interpreted as the shoulder yeah. was the curve of the tail because you know it kind of curves towards the spine uh, of the deer, and so it's it's very easy that okay it makes sense to me that I would be thinking it's a person because I'm right. I think I'm more much more likely to see a person than I am a large white-tailed deer, and so once you program yourself to kind of think that something's out there, uh, D- Dr. Darren Nash talks about this with. Uh, lake monsters how right. once um early silent films like the lost world came out ah yes yes started seeing a loch ness monster yep. kind of like a sauropod in water with that long kind of goose neck um 
Whereas that hadn't been widely reported before that because it wasn't in the popular uh, imagination. And, and we've seen the same with gray aliens. And you can make the same argument about Bigfoot. Yeah, I mean, my uh, interesting misidentification, I used to live around Jane, uh, sorry, Young and Young and Finch. And um, yeah, and that's, you know, it's kind of on the route to the airport and a lot of planes sort of are, are so they're, they're, they're landing sort of path or whatever. And um, I'm walking to the subway and I look up and looks to me like I see, it's called an Osprey, a V-22 tilt rotor. Osprey, as if it's like its wings are up and it's coming in landing. And I'm like, oh, that's unusual. Like, uh, I don't see many of those in the, you know, in the sky. And and then I'm like, well, we don't operate those. And, you know, and it's not an air show. I'm like, what the why there's, why is there a V-22 Osprey, you know, coming in landing in, you know, Pearson Airport? And then, you know, when I kind of like take another look, it's just, just the weird angle it, it re-resolves itself as just a dash 10 commuter plane, right? But it was just that weird angle, the weird lighting, you know, morning. It just resolved itself as, you know, something fantastic, not something pedestrian. And and, and I'm sure if maybe my train of thought had been interrupted, like someone like, excuse me, sir, do you have the correct time? You know, I would have just sworn, I know what I saw. You know, that kind of thing. I, I I look at the sky all the time and I've had a lifelong fascination with military aircraft and I know what I saw. You know, yeah, it, it's it's amazing how easy we are. We can be fooled. Yeah. Um my my father was a police officer for 30 years and he used to talk about how he was a trained observer. Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> and and sometimes he was good at catching me out on all sorts of things. Yeah, but yeah. also he was as good at misidentifying. You know, when we'd go on walks around the Scarborough Bluffs and we'd see what was out on the lake, he was good at misidentifying, you know, birds and stuff that he didn't have an yeah. expertise in. He had an interest in. It was something yeah. he, he'd always liked birds. Um, but it's very easy to make these mistakes. And we we lean to, you know, police and law, uh, law enforcement, military to be like, oh, they know that that must have been a UFO or that must have been this. Uh, but but trust me, like they're just as foul, fallible as you and I. Um, we'd like to think they're a little cooler under pressure, but (laughs) that just comes from experience. But if you have no experience in the supernatural or cryptozoological or, you know, ufological, then uh, you're just as fallible as anybody else. Well, all right. We should, we should wrap up Jeff. Um, I was going to say if, uh, when you eventually sort of do your article about the Toronto tunnel monster, um, I don't know if you have, blake's email but uh if you don't let me know and then because i think that would be a great thing to be on monster talk um let's 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 try to get you on monster talk because that would be that would be fascinating yeah yeah that that monster talk has been like probably the number one thing that has inspired these books yeah um and i basically the job i worked at to kind of finish my degree and then uh before moving into an office position i was just in a warehouse all day listening to two kind of contradictory podcasts. So I'd listen to coast to coast AM and I'd listen to monster talk. That's what you do, man. <laughs> yeah. And I got to say one has kind of taken away from the fun of the other because yeah, yeah. it's a lot easier to listen to these kind of coast episodes. Mm-hmm. And although I was never a diehard believer, right. uh, especially once they went very political and became right. kind of Trump supporting right, right. to me, 
And that's not just because I disagree with Trump. That's kind of like, you're supposed to be against the man, regardless of who the man is, you know? (laughs) Um, Like the government's supposed to be the, the military industrial complex that doesn't, that doesn't matter whether it's a who's in charge. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Smash the state, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually one more thing uh, before we wrap, I wonder as the conspiracy skeptic, if you've thought about this, because I tend to notice that the term deep state really took out military industrial complex. It used to be this idea that the military industrial complex would always be there um, regardless of who was in charge. But then the deep state concept really expanded and it became this idea that, oh, you can be the president and be our guy and our cheerleader like Trump. It's this deep state. So it it created like um, a good versus evil. I thought that I didn't really notice in conspiracy culture before. There weren't two sides to government, like state and deep state. It was always military industrial complex. You're you're right. I it is to me a fairly new term. And, and I mean it's in in some ways it's brilliant in that you know the how come we haven't been successful in, in implementing our broad sweeping agenda? Oh because I mean, traditionally, politicians like, well, the last guy just left us bankrupt and, you know, like we don't have money to do anything now. And, and you know, now it's right, right, right. Now it's like the right. It's the deep state that, you know, that they are there are forces, you know, shouting forces working really hard against us. And, you know, we would have got it all done yesterday, except, you know, and uh Yeah. You're right. I, I, to me, that it's a fairly new, new, new term. Uh, Jerry, if you're still listening, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Drake, he's he's part of the deep state. But uh, let me let me know, Jerry, is, or is that? Something... But we like him anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jerry, Jerry might be. Uh, Jerry, Jerry might have been familiar with that term for 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 decades, and and just it's just all new to us. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, good, good, good point. I wouldn't be surprised if it had an origin in something older, as these things often do, oh, yeah. but seems to have been kind of taken and run with as a way to kind of cheerlead, you know, the one presidential candidate who is willing to show up on Alex Jones's show. So obviously, if he's giving conspiracy theorists the ki- time of day, then he must be their guy. Yeah, exactly. All right. I'll, I, will, I will let you go. Uh, so so let's let's plug your book again. Your books. Uh... Okay, so it's the Creature X Mystery Series from Dundurn Press. Uh, the first in the series is called Roanoke Ridge, which features Bigfoot. The second is called Lake Crescent, uh, which features Cressy, a lesser-known cryptid. And then the third is Umboy Island, which features the Ropin. So um, it's better to read them in order, but they, they function as independent stories. So you won't really be lost if you just pick one in the middle. And, and you can get obviously you can get on Amazon. You can find it Indigo at your which local is bookstore. At your local bookstore, yeah, um, okay. you can order it in if they don't have it. I I just personally prefer to support local indie bookstores. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Book City is a small chain in the city of Toronto that yeah. carries them. But yeah, Chapters Indigo, uh, Walmart in the United States apparently carries them. Or very nice. Okay, you know, but your local and or unionized bookstore. Uh, support them is always nice. There you go. There you go. All right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as I always say, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the podcaster doesn't want anything. But uh, if you if you only have enough jingle in your pocket for one book, buy Jeff's book. If you have enough in your pocket to buy four books, buy Jeff's 
first three books, then buy my book. (laughs) But uh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm happy with that. Every other book situation. Okay. So, you know, Roanoke Ridge and okay. then the Skeptics Book of Lists and then, <laughs> um, or sorry, then Lake Crescent and then the Conspiracy Skeptics Book of Lists. The Conspiracy Skeptics Book of okay. Lists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. All right, all right. All right. Thank, thank, thanks so much for your time, Jeff. I'll, I'll, I'll let uh, you go. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, one more thing off oh, the yeah. show or yeah, to yeah. be off. No, no, um, if you want to send me, could you send me your books PDF format? I was talking sure. to the editor of the Superstitious Times, and I said right. I'd love to do a write up about your books oh, okay. to feature on his site. Um, so if you could do that, that'd be great. That yeah, not yeah, a problem. Yeah. They sound they sound amazing. I listened to your episode uh, where you just had the list of kind of foundational documents. Yes, right. Yes, yes. And a great episode. Fascinating sounding oh, subject matter. Um, I mean. And I'd rather read your book of lists than actually yeah. have to look at the subject matter itself and read these kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy manifestos, which there are too much of out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'd be happy to send it to you. Thank, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. This has been great. great. All right. Have a good night. Bye-bye. You too. Take care. Check it.